right, so we're back in the book of Ezekiel today. So if you have um, your Bible, if anybody actually brought a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 24, or you can scroll there or turn in your booklets if you grabbed a booklet off the table. If you didn't have a booklet and you want to grab an Ezekiel booklet, they're on the back. You can go ahead and stand up and grab one. Today we're talking about loss. Today is another one of those Ezekiel chapters. It's like, boy, why did John pick Ezekiel to go through, right? We're talking about pain and loss and suffering. We all dread the pain of loss, right? We're all afraid of it. Nobody goes, boy, I really love this feeling. You know what I mean? And we do what we can to avoid it. Like when I was a kid, uh, I wouldn't take a balloon. When somebody was like, hey, you want a balloon? And I was like, no, it's just going to leave me. This balloon, <laughs> this balloon is going to fly away and it's going to be sad. And I'd rather, I'd just rather not. I'd rather not love this balloon, you know. It, because I knew that feeling of watching your balloon float away and thinking, boy, I'm probably never going to get another balloon. Right, because kids, you know, anyway. <laughs> we know that feeling, right? We, we try to avoid that feeling. And when we do experience loss, you, so we, we try to avoid it and then we hate it when it happens. The, there's so many different reactions that people have to the feeling of loss, to the feeling of um, uh, some sort of a deep pain, right? So some people will just break down. Uh, some people will go straight into denial, right? There's no way. There's no way that, you know, some people just sit in shock. Others... I don't want to point any fingers at me, but others will make a joke to try to, <laughs> you know, diffuse the situation, try to distract my, I mean, themselves. Okay, that's the one that I do. Uh, others will get angry when they get bad news of loss or whatever. Today we're going to read about loss. To our sermon today, I don't, okay, I'm really bad at naming sermons, you know. Usually I just kind of put the, the, the passage we're in. Today the sermon title is Two Losses, because what we're going to read about is two different losses. Um, the book of Ezekiel, like we've, if you've been with us at all in Ezekiel, you'll understand this. If you haven't, uh, this is new to you. But the book of Ezekiel is really, really weird. Okay? This is one of those instances where the book of Ezekiel especially is really weird. God tells Ezekiel, look, this is what I need you to do. You're going to suffer a loss, and I need you to be really weird in the face of that loss so that everybody will go, why are you being weird? And then you can explain to them some of the message that I have to you. Um, because what he says is, I need you to be weird when you do this. Because all of us think we know how people will react in uh, the face of loss. Right? Those, you know, we have like that, the face of shock or denial or whatever. We think we know what people look like when they lose a loved one or lose a job or whatever. You know, something big, dramatic uh, kind of a thing. And so if somebody was acting weird, it would really throw you off and you would have to ask why. Um, in 2009, there was a movie called The Messenger. Has anybody seen this movie starring Woody Harrelson? He's from Cheers. If you don't know about Cheers, mm -mm -mm, you should learn about Cheers. That show is hilarious. Anyway, so Woody Harrelson's from Cheers. Uh, he's in this movie and he's the, he's a, um, uh, he works for the army, I think it is. And his job is, this is during the Iraq war. His job is to go and to tell the families that somebody, their loved one has died. So he knocks on the door, and when they open the door and they see him standing there, they know what happened. And so um, I, don't, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. The way I kind of remember it, though, is he's training a new guy, and the new guy doesn't handle it very well. And, um, but those scenes, this is a, it's one of those gut-wrenching movies that even when you tell yourself, these are just actors on a soundstage, it's still... <laughs> Yeah, you watch it and you're just like, oh, man. Um, the scenes of people breaking down, it just it hits you right in the feels. 
And the movie is about him sort of taking all of that on and what it's like to have this job and to be the guy who has to share this news with people that your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, whatever it is, has been killed in action or is missing or whatever it is. But imagine if Woody Harrelson in the movie walks up to a door and he goes to deliver the news and then somebody goes, okay, and then started laughing. You know, your wife just died. Okay. You'd be taken about, you'd go, okay, hold on, guy. That's not how you're supposed to react when somebody tells you that your kid died, that your wife died, that whoever died. This is basically what happens to Ezekiel today. God tells him, you know how to react when something big like this happens to you, and I need you to do the opposite. So that when it happens, everybody will go, what? And then it'll create opportunity for you to share my plan with them, right? All right, so let's jump in. So this is two losses. The first loss is the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so we'll start in verse one. Uh, We'll just kind of walk through here. Let's see, here we go. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month. Son of man, write down today's date, this very day. So remember, we've talked about this in Ezekiel. He is um, the most... Uh, accurate, you know, he's writing dates down constantly throughout this book. And so this is another one of those instances. And it's really weird that God specifically tells him, I need you to write this specific date, write it down. Don't forget today. This is January 588 BC. This is nine years now since Ezekiel, he's in exile in the city of Babylon or just outside of Babylon with a bunch of the other people. He was taken, there were three waves of exiles he was part of that second wave, and the third one hasn't happened yet. And so he tells him, write down this date because you're going to, this is going to be an iconic date. It's like if I, you know, there are just dates. You don't need to say what happened. You just say the date, right? 9-11. Everybody knows what happened on, nobody goes, September 11th, what is that? Or like uh, June 6th. Who knows June 6th? Yeah, what's June 6th? D-Day. D-Day. Yeah. December, what is it, 4th? I should have wrote that down. December, no, uh, 7th, December 7th, Pearl Harbor, right? We have these days, I guess as we get further away, they're harder to remember, but 9-11, you know what I mean? This is like that. Why? What's going on here? Why, why write down this day? He says right here. Oh, I was like, why is it all, there's a 24, I see, tricky. Um, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So for four years now, Ezekiel has been giving the people this threefold message, okay? The first part is you have rebelled, you've cheated on God. The second part is he's going to send Babylon to destroy the city of Jerusalem and take whoever survives into exile. And then three, the goal of all of this is to purify his people. The theme of the book of Ezekiel is so that they will know that I am the Lord. That shows up, I forget what it was, 70 something times in these 48 chapters of Ezekiel. And so Every time he gave this message, we've been through the same cycle like a dozen times now. Every time he's given the same message, the people go, nah, I don't think so. We're the chosen people. God would never destroy Jerusalem. That's where the temple is, right? This is his holy place. And we have these other prophets over here who are fighting the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem at the same time. These other guys are saying there's no way that God's going to let his temple fall. So what we're going to do is we're going to go with him. We're going to go with these guys. But now... Nebuchadnezzar is in Jerusalem, and he has surrounded the city. He set up the siege works. It's, it, the process has started. I watched a video the other day, and it was of a police officer, 
and he was he had only been a cop for like less than a year I think and he was one of these big meathead kind of looking dudes who picked on me in high school you know what I mean these big kind of guys and he was being interviewed by the DA and he was he was sitting at a table being interviewed by a DA and he was this the video was like the official record they set up a little camera told him hey we're recording and he was super friendly this guy was real nice and he was joking and she asked him some innocent questions do you have uh, social media accounts yeah which ones do you have he didn't know why he was there do you have social media accounts? Which ones do you have? Yeah, I have Snapchat. I have this. I have that and other. And uh, she goes, yeah, well, so what's your work schedule like? She, you know, he thinks she's just kind of small talking to him. He starts giving his work schedule. What about your wife's work schedule? And in answering that question, he realized, you start to realize, oh, he has huge chunks of time when he's away from his wife. Uh, and then at a certain point, she's just kind of asking him all these really innocent questions. But then he put it together, what she was after. He had sent, uh, my kids are in the room, so I won't say out loud, but he had sent some inappropriate things to some minors. And he slowly started to real, like, so as she's asking these questions, she basically, at one point, I think she asked him, so nobody else really has access to your phone then? And he said no. And then as soon as he said it, you can see his whole face change. And everything that was polite and nice and jovial and joking about him completely disappeared. All of a sudden, it hit this guy. I'm going to spend 15 years in jail. And there's no way out of this. And he, but then he was really cocky and arrogant, so he kept trying to talk his way out of it, and he kept digging the hole deeper and deeper. And then at the end of the video, it cut to three months later, and he's in a jumpsuit, and he's getting sentenced. I think it was like 15 years this guy got. But that moment, man, it was so real. You know, like you watch Law and & Order and everything is fake, and then you watch something like this, and it was so real. The exact moment when this guy's entire life changed, when he realized, uh-oh, you know, I really stepped in it here. <laughs> this is not going to go well for me. That's the moment that Ezekiel is in. God tells him, I want you to write down this exact moment. Maybe Ezekiel was out having a picnic by the Kibar Canal. I don't know what he was doing. And God shows up and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to write this day down right now. Why? Because Babylon has sieged, you know, we've, the siege has started. And what happened in the history of this is Babylon moved through the countryside of Judah and they destroyed town after town, city after city, until everything was destroyed except for the city of Jerusalem. And then they set up their, their army in a circle around basically the city of Jerusalem. So now there's no way in and there's no way out. And the waiting game of the siege has started. So what Ezekiel does next is God tells him, look, uh, verse 3, now uh, speak a parable to the rebellious house. So he wants him to tell them a story to this rebellious house, one of Ezekiel's most used phrases to describe the people of God. These are people who have rebelled against me. He says, tell them this parable. And what he does is he, I don't know, it's like SpongeBob SquarePants or something. He tells, he starts singing this whole song about food. Okay, so this is like a Wendy's jingle or something, but with a meaning behind it. So he says, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. Put the pot in the, uh, put the pot on the fire. So like an actual pot, not like pot, you know what I mean? Uh, Put the pot on the fire, put it on, and then pour water into it. Place the pieces of meat in it, every good piece, thigh and shoulder, fill it with the choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock and also pile up fuel under it. Bring it to a boil and then cook bones in it. 
So this is what they call the parable of the pot. The image is this. There's this, you know, there's a pot, kind of a small cooking, whatever. They didn't really have pots and pans. Most of these houses had one thing to cook stuff in. So it's kind of a big, giant thing. So take that and throw all the meat in it and then slowly cook it. And the imagery here is that the people, uh, the good pieces, are these arrogant people in Jerusalem who are saying, God would never let us be destroyed. And what Ezekiel tells them is, yeah, you are, and you're, it's going to happen slowly, right? The, the siege is going to be a slow cooking kind of event. Um, let me read you about the siege here in uh, the book of 2 Kings. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all his army uh, against Jerusalem and laid, and laid siege to it. And they built siege works around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Uh, let's see, verse 3. On the ninth day of the fourth month, of the, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night uh, by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. So in verses 1 and 2 in that section, the siege is narrated. So they go, they set up the siege, all this stuff happens. Verse 3 tells us the conditions. The famine was so severe and all this stuff. We learn from the book of Lamentations and Jeremiah that the siege got so bad that the people were dying and then everybody was eating the dead people, women, and I mean, uh, infants and old people because those are always the first ones to die. Then verse 4 tells us about the fall of Jerusalem. They finally busted a hole in the wall of the city, the Babylonians did, and they poured into the city and a couple of people tried to escape. And, but really what happens is they burn the whole city down and they completely destroy the temple. Between verses 3 and 4 took three years. So between the time when they set up the siege works and the time when they broke the city walls down was three years. Three years of terror. Three years of famine and struggle. Three years of disease and anxiety, death, hopelessness. You know how much that like, anxiety builds inside you? You know what I'm talking about? So like, have you ever been out camping and then right before you went to bed you saw a bear? And then you got in your tent and you had to lay there all night and pray for the morning to come? And it was like eight hours until light. And you're just like, this bear is probably going to eat me. I just know it. I've seen the revenant. I know what bears do. And uh, this is like that. This is that level of anxiety. I just know these Babylonians are going to get me. And they eventually do get them. But three years is a long time. I mean, that's longer than we were locked down. Right? This is the original lockdown. That's longer. You know, it's a long time to sit in there and stress. And that's what God tells them. This is what's coming now that it's started. All right, let's keep going. So he says in verse 6, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, Woe to the city of bloodshed. The pot has corrosion in it, and its corrosion has not come out of it. Empty piece by empty piece, lots should not be cast for its content, for the blood she shed is still within her. She put out the bare rock. She didn't pour on the ground to cover, the dust, to cover it with dust. In order to stir up wrath and vengeance, I have poured... Uh, I have put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. So the parable continues, and what it says is that the stew is in there in the pot and it's cooking, but it's like getting all gunky and gross inside as it cooks. And then verse 9, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, Woe to the city of bloodshed. I myself uh, will make the pile of kindling large. 
Pile the logs and kindling on the fire. So get the fire underneath the pot real big. Cook the meat well and mix it with spices. Let the bones be burned. Set the empty pot on its coals so that it becomes hot and its copper glows. Then its impurity will melt inside it. Its corrosion will be consumed. It has frustrated every effort. Its thick corrosion will not come off into the fire with this corrosion. So this is one of those. So the pot then, the soup cooks and then they leave it or the stew or whatever this is, and it gets so nasty that this is one of those dishes that you can't even soak it. You know what I mean? And not like how I soak dishes so I don't have to do them, but like soaking dishes to actually get the gunk off of it, right? Like this is really, really nasty. This is the Tupperware you left in the trunk of your car, and then you forgot about the sandwich that was in the Tupperware, and then your wife finds it and said, why did you leave the Tupperware with a sandwich in it? And it's all disgusting. The city is so bad that God says, not only do I have to cook the, you know, cook the people in the city, we have to get rid of the whole pot. And so we got to like when we find the Tupperware in the trunk, nobody takes that Tupperware upstairs and tries to wash it out. What do you do with the Tupperware? Straight to the garbage. You put it in a bag and then you put that one in another bag so nobody sees what you did. And then you throw it in the garbage. That's what God does here. He says, look, this pot is so corroded, it's so disgusting that, like, I'm going to just heat it up and get rid of the pot. And so, like, it says, it talks about it glows like a blacksmith, you know, heats up the pot, melts it down, because that's the only way you're going to get this gunk off. And then verse 13, because of the depravity of your uncleanness, since I tried to purify you with prophets and king, you know, all these people who came with this message, I tried to purify you, but you would not be purified from your uncleanness. You will not be pure again until... I've satisfied my wrath on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming. I will do it. I will not refrain. I will not show pity. I will not relent. I will judge you according to your ways and deeds. This is the declaration of the Lord. So for centuries, God sent prophet after prophet. He sent messenger after messenger, and they rejected them all. And what they did was they forced God's hand. It's come to this awful siege and this awful battle, and the city will fall. The nation will be lost. Death and exile are coming. That's the first loss, is the city of Jerusalem, the nation is going to fall. But I call this sermon two losses, right? That's the first one. Now the second one. But first, here's a little bit of prep. Um, remember, Ezekiel is a weird book. Before we dive into this, I need to set the stage. Ezekiel is a weird book. And Ezekiel has already been called at this point to a very hard life. What we've read in this book is tough. He, he was trained his whole life to be a priest, and then he, can't, he ends up not being able to be a priest. And we meet him on the day that he's supposed to be having his like ordination service in the temple, and he's sitting by the Kibar Canal thousands of miles from home, pouting. This, is, this was supposed to be the day when I get installed as a priest in the temple of God. And he has to spend his life in exile. And then God comes to him and says, hey, I have this job for you. You get to speak to the people, but you can only talk while you're speaking to the people. The rest of your life, you're a mute. And then I need you to do all these weird sign acts. So I need you to cook food over cow dung, and that's all you can eat, and it tastes literally like crap. And then nobody's going to believe you. I need you to lay on your side for like hundreds and hundreds of days and everything uh, so that everybody watches you. All this weird stuff. I need you to give these messages of judgment, and nobody's going to like you. Nobody's going to believe you. And your ministry is going to be really hard. And we read about this, and we're like, man, he had a hard life. And then we come to chapter 24. In 24, what we're about to read pales 
uh, everything else pales in comparison to what we're about to read. Okay, so this is about to be is the hardest thing God asks Ezekiel to do. Look at verse 24, uh, sorry, chapter 24, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you with a fatal blow. So imagine the scene for a second. Picture this prophet. He is in exile, living the hard life. We talked about his house was probably sort of a mud hut. And he's really skinny because of this diet that God has him on where he has to weigh all the food and all this stuff. So he's a living picture of the starvation that's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And then one night, silently, because he can't talk, he's, I'm imagining this, right? He's praying in the corner. And he prays for the people, the elders and their rebellion. Uh, he prays for the Babylonians even. He prays that God's will would be done. He's going through everything. He's worshiping God. He's remembering the vision that he had of the throne of God. And he's sitting there and he's just having this beautiful time praying. And then he prays for his wife. And he, you notice what it calls her here, the delight of his eyes. In the ancient world, people didn't marry for love, right? They mostly married as an economic transaction. Love was almost never the driving force behind marriage. And in most ancient cultures, women were closer in marriage to property than they were to partners. But the Hebrew scriptures paint a completely different picture. Proverbs, Song of Solomon especially, paints it as this, this radically different love of equals uh, who were called to serve and to love one another in marriage. And it seems like Ezekiel was a good dude who really took that to heart. And his wife was the delight of his eyes. He loved his wife. And so we can imagine that he prays for her. Lord, I have it hard, but I thank you that in everything that's tough in my life, that at least I have this wonderful woman. She's amazing. She's loving. She's beautiful. She cooks a mean stew over an open flame. I imagine, I don't know, that's what they ate back then, you know, uh, same thing every day. He says, Lord, I thank you for her. And then the Lord speaks to, uh, speaks to Ezekiel. I'm going to take her life. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it sounded like you said you were going to kill my wife. And then God says, with a fatal blow and more. So not only am I going to take your wife, but it goes even, it gets harder. But you must not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Groan quietly. Do not observe mourning rites for the dead. Put on your turban and strap sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache or eat the bread of mourners. So not only is your wife going to die, you're not even allowed to do all the normal funeral stuff. No crying while you're preaching. No public displays of mourning. Now, remember, in our culture, we're terrible at death and mourning. But these funeral rites in the ancient world, it was a big deal. These were whalers. You know what I mean? These people knew how to say goodbye to somebody who died. And Ezekiel loses his wife. And on top of that, God tells him, you can't even go through the normal public process to grieve. Of all the hard things God has asked Ezekiel to do, it's like this and then everything else. I can eat the crap food as long as I have my wife. I can lay on my side every day for a couple hours if I have, but he takes away Ezekiel's partner. Verse 18, keep going. I spoke to the people in the morning and my wife died in the evening. The next morning I did just as I was commanded. So this is such a horrible, painful thing stated so matter-of-factly. She died and I did what God told me to do. Now again, in our culture, Mourning is not a big deal, but in this one, it was huge. And funeral rites were super important. Ezekiel, what he does here would have really made him stand out. 
It's so out of the norm for these people that everybody would have wondered what was going on. Right, like imagine if I died. Don't look so happy. Imagine if I died. Okay, here we go. And everyone was expecting a funeral where everybody shows up and says nice things about the pastor. But instead, Melissa invites everybody over to our house and she says, all right, I want to get everybody to stand up and tell me all the things you didn't like about John. (laughs) Tell me all the horrible things John did to you. So they have this whole funeral in the afternoon where they make fun of me. And then instead of eating all of John's favorite food, which is kind of, you know, some people do that funeral. This was his favorite dish, right? It's all vegetables and stuff that I don't like. And then at the gathering, somebody asks Melissa, well, what'd you do with John? Did you, is he buried, cremated somewhere? And she says, no, I bought a circus cannon and I shot him into the ocean. Okay. Most of you would go, have you lost your mind? We're making fun of him. We're not eating his favorite foods. We're not burying him. This is not what we do when somebody dies, right? This is not how you're supposed to ask. You're supposed to act. This is crazy. And this is exactly what they say. Then the people asked me, verse 19, uh, then the people asked me, won't you tell us what these things you are doing mean for us? So they know he's a prophet. And they're like this completely out of the normal. He's not He's not wearing the funeral clothes. He's not wearing, he's not doing the funeral bread and all this different stuff. And uh, he's not saying goodbye. And so they say, we know you're a prophet, so we know you're up to something. So what is it that you're up to? So I answered them, verse 20, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. I am about to desecrate my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the desire of your heart. Also, the sons and daughters you, will, uh, you left behind will fall by the sword. So this is Ezekiel's answer. The people of God loved the temple. It was this beautiful building in a world where they didn't have a lot of beautiful buildings. You know, we look in San Francisco. Oh, I'm sorry, we live in San Francisco. And as I look out my window, you've all been, mostly been to my apartment. We can look out and see a bunch of buildings that would have dwarfed the, the majesty of the temple of, you know, in Jerusalem, but they didn't have a lot of buildings like this. And so they took a lot of pride in it, and they thought God would never destroy his own temple because this is where he lives, and so we're safe. The siege would never break into the city. The temple will never be destroyed. They loved this temple like Ezekiel loved his wife. And so Ezekiel tells the people that. You've lifted this temple up, and now... She's gone. She's going to be gone. And soon, like my wife is gone, soon the temple will be gone as well. Verse 22, let's keep going. Then you will do just as I have done. You will not cover your mustache, which was like a mourning thing, or eat the bread of mourners. Your turbans will remain on your head and your sandals on your feet. Again, those were mourning things to take off your, your head stuff and your, your sandals. You will not lament and weep but will waste away because of your iniquities and will groan to one another. The shock of the fall of Jerusalem would be so great that you won't be able to mourn normally. You're going to be in shock. So many people will die, so many of your family will die, that you won't have time to have funerals for each of them. Right? This was like, um, oh man, I'm trying to think, like an event where a lot of people die, and instead of doing a funeral for each person, they do one kind of mass funeral. They're saying, this is what it's going to be like. This is how bad the devastation is going to be. And then verse 24, now Ezekiel will be a sign for you. You will do everything that he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the Lord your God. Uh, I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, know that on this day, on the, um, sorry, on that day that I will take the, from them their stronghold, their pride and joy, the delight of their eyes. So just like 
though Ezekiel's wife was the delight of his eyes, the temple is the delight of their eyes, and the longing of their hearts, as well as their sons and daughters. So Ezekiel's life here was supposed to be a picture, a sign of what was going to happen to the people. And we know that eventually there is a remnant of faithful believers who return home from exile. So when they were taken into exile, most of these people were in rebellion against God, and very few of them were faithfully following the covenant uh, that God had given his people. But eventually some of them do come back. And one commentator put it like this. He said something along the lines of, look, I bet the death of Ezekiel's wife and the sign and the weird not mourning and all that stuff had a real impact on people who placed a high uh, priority on funeral rites. As people saw this, they thought, whoa, God is serious about what he's doing, and then they turned back to the Lord. And look, we don't know anything about Ezekiel's wife. She's not mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible except here and that she died. But if she was a faithful believer, and I bet that she was being married to Ezekiel, that means one day that you are probably going to meet this woman in eternity if you're a follower of Jesus. Think about that. That's pretty cool. And when you ask her about this, Ezekiel's wife, we don't even know her name, right? Uh, it's probably Francine. Okay, when you're like, hey, Francine, we'll imagine. Was it worth it? She'll probably say, I would do it all again if the Lord asked me, if the Lord asked me to, right? Jesus said that the life of every believer would be to take up your cross and follow me. And if God appeared to me, and he said, and I really knew it was him, right? Not that I just ate bad Taco Bell the night before and had a weird drink, but like, if God really appeared to me and he said, look, John, you're going to get cancer and you're going to die right now. And people are going to watch you die because you're a pastor. And the way that you die and your attitude and your trust in me is going to bring one person to faith. I'd go, boy, that sucks, but okay. <laughs> right? Because that's, that's kind of what God did here. He took her life and he did it to teach the people a lesson to bring them back to him, to turn their love away from their temple and away from all their idols and away from all this stuff that they were caught up in and back to the one that the temple is meant to glorify, right? Instead of worshiping the temple, they're meant to worship God. So then verse 26, the last couple verses here. On that day, a fugitive will come to you and report the news. So eventually the temple is going to fall and a fugitive, somebody is going to get away from the Babylonian army and make his way all the way to Babylon to tell the people who are already in exile, hey, the temple fell. We're going to get to that in chapter 33, right? We're going to read that, so we're going to put that off for now. And then the last verse here, 27. On that day, your mouth will be opened to talk with him. You will speak and no longer be mute. So you will be a sign for them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So on the day that this fugitive shows up and says the temple has been destroyed, uh, you are finally going to get to be able to talk again, Ezekiel and that your mouth is going to be opened. And then what happens is the tone of the book of Ezekiel completely shifts from judgment and wrath and all this stuff we've been, we've been slogging through, you know, we've been working through to this, this notes of grace and the future and eternity and all this wonderful stuff, which is one of the big reasons I wanted to read the book of Ezekiel was for that second half of the book there. All right, so let's set this up then. The thrust of this passage is about these two losses, the loss of the temple or let's see, Ezekiel first was severed from his wife, and the people were severed from their temple and their capital city. And we all know what this kind of loss is like. Maybe not a spouse, but something. We know the feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, grief and pain, despair and anger. 
You know that feeling where you're sad and angry all at the same time because of whatever is going on in your life? Maybe it was that you lost a job that you thought, man, this job is my future. Maybe somebody in your family, maybe your parents went through a divorce. Maybe you've been through a divorce. Death of a loved one, right? Maybe the, let's see, the market crash and everybody like was at 2000 and whatever that was. When all of a sudden everybody's retirement was like, well, maybe I'm not going to be able to retire. Maybe you've had your car window broken over and over and over again, like because you live in the city, right? Whatever it is, you know, the, these frustrating things. Our lives are filled with these attachments that are so important to us, but that ultimately don't last, right? We try to hold on to these things that we're told don't last. Um, this is actually one of the big tenets behind Buddhism, right? If you know a lot about Buddhism, it's a, a big idea in Buddhism is that pain and suffering and a lot of this stuff come from attachment and holding on to possessions and holding on to things, right? So if you study Buddhism at all, attachment is like a big word in Buddhism. And they teach that we hold on to these things, we're attached to these things because we're ignorant of the true nature of reality. And we treat things as permanent when ultimately they aren't. And so the idea with Buddhism is you spend all this time meditating and doing all these different things, depending on what kind of Buddhism, you know, Buddhism is like, you know, it's a big vast with all these branches and stuff. But the big idea is to let go and detach from those things. And they do this with meditation and mindfulness and all this stuff. And all of this uh, is the pathway to become completely detached, which is the end goal of this religious system, right? To be completely liberated from your attachments. They call that nirvana. Now, a lot of that sounds nice on paper. The problem is, is it misses the true nature of actual humanity. Why do we hold on to things so tightly? Why do we hold on to relationships and people? Because we're built like that. We're built to grab onto things. We're built to need other people. We're built to attach. We need to, what we need then is something to grab onto that will actually last. It's not to just completely let go. What we need is to grab onto something that will hold. And we, I think you can all see where I'm going with this. Right? We need to hold on to God. And we need, to, we need God in a way that we can be sure that he won't let go of us, right? And it's not, uh, well, okay, how does that happen, though? How does that work? Okay, you guys know I've used this theological idea like a hundred times in our church because I love it, and it's pretty cool. There's this thing in theology called perichoresis. You guys know this? Okay, here we go. You ready for this? This is going to be on the test. Okay, it's called perichoresis, and what theologians call that is the dance of God, and what they mean by that is in eternity past, before God created anything, he was a trinity. And each person in the trinity loved and perfectly served the other two. So the father was always loving and serving the Holy Spirit and the son. The son was always loving perfectly and serving the Holy Spirit and the father. And the spirit was always serving the father and the son. And it worked in this way where they kind of call it a dance. They're sort of circling around each other in this dance. And we were created not because God was lonely. He wasn't lonely. He had perfect relationship within the head of the Trinity, right? But we were created to dance with God. You were created to be the fourth person in there dancing and serving the other three and serving the other people around you, right? And so um, it's not until you understand that that's what you were built for that you're going to understand this idea of attachment, right? Like I said, you can't just detach like in Buddhism. You have to let go of the idols in your life, but then turn around and grab onto something else. You guys watch American Ninja Warrior? Okay, I love this show. You guys know this show? 
Nobody's seen this? Okay. It's basically these insane obstacle courses, and, and it happens over a pool so that there's all this stuff. It's like really insane monkey bars for adults is basically what this is, right? And so <laughs> there's this one where they have these poles, and they're hanging kind of on chains, I think, and you have to sort of swing like this. And you have to let go of it, and then you're floating in the air, and then you have to reach out and you have to grab the other one so you can keep swinging. That's what I'm talking about. Buddhism says you need to just let go. And what I'm saying is if you just let go, you're going to fall in the pool, and everybody's going to laugh at you on national TV. Right? But what Christianity says is it's true. You've got your idols behind you. You need to swing and you need to let go, and then you need to turn around and you need to grab onto God. Right? The, um, I'm gonna, sorry, we'll run out of time. I'm going to skip some of this here. Let me go down. Now, with the gospel story, the way that this works, it's actually a terrible analogy because we don't really grab onto God. What we do is we swing, we let go of our idols, and then God grabs onto us, right? And then he pulls us in. And that's the gospel story. And so our response with this passage, our gut feeling when we read this passage, I think all of us had this as I read this, is to look, is to go, God took Ezekiel's wife. God took all these people in the city of Jerusalem. He's a monster, Right? If, a, if a God would do this, something's wrong. The problem with that is, is it misses the whole picture of the Bible. Right? Ezekiel losing his wife, that sucked. Jerusalem falling, that sucks too. But both of those separations are awful. But in comparison and in perspective, they're small potatoes to what Jesus went through. Right? Because what we learn is uh, that God went through a similar separation. Right? God came down, he became one of us. The Trinity, who was perfectly in sync, you know, like perfectly loving and perfectly connected to one another. The Son, the second member of the Trinity, he came down to earth. He took on human flesh. He walked around, he lived the life we could never live, and then he was nailed to the cross. And the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. And when that happened, that relationship between the Father and the Son, between the Holy Spirit and the Son, was severed. It was broken so that God could pour out his wrath. He understands what it means to be separated, and he did it out of love. He did it so that we could be brought back into this right relationship with him. Hebrews talks about this a little bit. It says, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Basically, we suffer loss. Sure, we do. It's horrible. Jesus did as well. And then it says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Here's the thing. This is what sets Christianity apart from every world religion. No world religion has a perfect answer to why does loss and pain happen. Christianity says loss and pain happen, God is still in control, and we're never given the whole picture. Every other religious system says loss and pain happen, and here's our explanation, or here's why we, you know, and none of them really measure up. None of them are perfect. But what Christianity has that's unique is we have a God who entered into that loss and that pain. And we have a God who says, when you experience this kind of loss and pain, I'm going to go and I'm going to sit there with you. He really understands us. He's promised to be the one who actually comforts us. And we can still rejoice in him knowing what he has told us, that his plan is to work out, you know, it says uh, he's working all things for good for those who are, he loves and are called according to his purpose. You know that verse? God's working all of it out. And we can trust when something bad happens, when we go through this pain and this loss. And we don't have to always know why. 
We don't, Ezekiel knew why. A lot of people, their wife dies and they have no idea why. Right? Jerusalem falls and they have no idea why. And so what we do with the gospel story is we don't say, God, what are you doing? You're a monster. We look at the gospel and we're blown away by saying, God, how could you enter into this yourself? That's how much you love me, is by coming, by dying, and by being separated the same way that Ezekiel was. And then that's the kind of God that we want to trust and we want to say, okay, I'm going through this loss. I don't know why, but I trust that you're working out your purposes for good. All right, let's pray.